Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part three of Lies, Damn Lies, and Statistics. In part one, we covered the amazing growth of the LDS Church back in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. At that time, membership growth of the LDS Church was so great that it was predicted that if those growth rates continued, then sometime in this century, the LDS Church would achieve the status of a new world religion. We talked about how the growth of the church became associated with and publicly proclaimed as a sign that the church was true because the growth of the church was fulfilling prophecy, both old and modern, both by Daniel and by Joseph Smith. Now, certainly it was not the only sign of the truth of the church that was proclaimed. There was still revelation being received by the prophet of the church as a sign. There was still priesthood blessings resulting in healings as a sign. There were still gifts of the Spirit as a sign. But in the 20th century, as prophecies became scarce, as healings became non-existent, as other gifts of the Spirit fell away, the growth of the church became a sign that was more and more depended upon to show the truth of the church. As a Mormon who was baptized back in 1978, I remember gathering every April and every October in general conference to wait with bated breath to find out what the new church membership numbers were and how much the church had grown in membership in the past six months. And I was never disappointed. There was phenomenal growth during this period, and I do not think that I was the only member of the church who felt the same way about the report on statistics of the growth of membership. But since that time, and more and more in recent years, the church membership growth has suffered from two problems. First off, the growth itself is decreasing and approaching the point of flatlining, as we covered in episode one. But not only is growth decreasing, members are leaving the church now in record numbers. It is a very difficult time for the church. It is losing members on three fronts. First off, it is losing members to neo-Orthodox movements, such as the movement represented by Denver Snuffer. Members who believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet, but after he died, Brigham Young went off the rails and the apostasy of the LDS Church continues down to the present day. Therefore, members are leaving the church or being excommunicated from the church for believing that they need to restore what was had originally with Joseph Smith and what has been lost by succeeding presidents of the church since that time. That's one front that the church faces. Another front is members who are increasingly learning more and more about negative and, at least for them, faith-destroying aspects of church history, and members are leaving in increasing numbers over that cause. Finally, on the third front, many, many members are leaving because of the church's position on social issues. So the growth rate of the church is not only declining, in other words, fewer members are joining the church as far as converts go, but increasingly members of the church are leaving over these various issues. The question then becomes, what is the church going to do about this situation? They have already committed themselves over and over again to the proposition that phenomenal growth rate means that the church is true. What is the church going to do now that the growth rate is stopping and people are leaving the church in droves? In part two, we covered how the church is addressing this issue in public statements. They're not coming out and saying that people are leaving the church in droves, but they are coming out and calling upon people who have left the church to come back to the church. We covered a couple of statements along those lines by President Uchtdorf and by newly non-elected President Russell M. Nelson. Also, we covered a number of programs that have been instituted in this decade, which appear to be designed with the goal in mind of getting members to come back to the church, that was the rescue program, if you recall, and also other programs designed to keep members from leaving the church, either before they go on their mission, after they get back from their mission, as well as other points along the way. But that is not the only thing that the church has done in order to address this crisis of failing membership. In this episode, we will talk about other things that the church has done to monkey with the statistics in order to make it appear that the church is growing at a faster rate than it really is. We will also talk about certain statements that have been made by general authorities of the church, statements that seem to be contradictions and, yes, perhaps even lies 
about the state of growth of the membership of the LDS Church. And finally, we will look at a very recent statement from a general authority that tries to redefine growth in such a way as to change it from membership to something else entirely. The first thing that I want to talk about as far as statistics go, and by the way, I need to put in a parenthetical note here. I am not a statistician. There are some of you who will be sad to hear that. Those would be the statisticians out there. However, there are also a number of you who will be very happy to hear that I'm not a statistician because I am not going to go get in the weeds with the numbers, with the breakdowns, with all those different kinds of calculations that statisticians regularly do. What I am going to do is just take a handful of items where it appears the church is playing with the statistics in order to yield a greater result than is actually there. My source of information is from a website. It is called fullerconsideration.com backslash membership dot php. I am not sure who the author is of this website, but he or she is obviously a statistician. And on this website, they give all the bases and the research and the reasonings behind these statistics that they present. And indeed, doing statistics on church membership by a person who is not in the upper echelons of the LDS Church is part statistics and part detective work because the LDS Church does give and announce statistics on certain aspects of the church growth. However, there are many other aspects of church growth and statistics that the church keeps to itself. And therefore, a lot of deduction and a lot of investigative work has to go on by statisticians to come up with numbers that they then crunch in order to find out what is really going on. And I only want to talk about a couple of things here. The first thing has to do with the counting of children as members of the LDS Church who have not yet reached the age of eight. Now, as any Mormon knows, infant baptism in the LDS Church is a big deal. One of the original doctrines of the church had to do with how wrong it was to baptize infants. In fact, in the Book of Mormon, and I believe it's the Book of Mormon in the Book of Mormon, chapter 8, Mormon goes on to talk about how wrong, how awful, how diabolical the doctrine of infant baptism is. The Book of Mormon puts it forth as a doctrine that denies the merits of the atonement of Jesus Christ and goes even further to say that if a person should die while in the thought that children and infants need baptism, that that person will speedily go down to hell. That's how heretical a doctrine infant baptism is in the LDS Church. And of course, in the Doctrine and Covenants, in a revelation to Joseph Smith, the age is given at eight years old, the age of accountability. That is the age at which children are to be baptized and people cannot be baptized in the LDS Church until they are at least the age of eight. This much is common knowledge to all members of the LDS Church. Now, baptism is an interesting ordinance. It has two primary functions, not just one, as in other churches. In many other Christian churches, the ordinance of baptism is seen as an ordinance whereby the sins of the individual are washed away and the individual is made clean. Now, that part of baptism is maintained in Mormonism. Baptism is an ordinance of the priesthood. It is an ordinance of salvation. It is required for salvation, and it is an ordinance by which sins are remitted. But in Mormonism, baptism also fulfills a separate and distinct function, and that function is to make a person a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is by being baptized that a person becomes a member of the church. It is frequently taught in the LDS Church that we need to come unto Christ, but we come unto Christ by being baptized, and we come unto Christ by being baptized into his church. And the ordinance that follows immediately after, that of confirmation, makes this clear. A person is baptized, and then after they're baptized, they are confirmed a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In fact, those are the exact words that are required to be said by the priesthood holder who lays hands upon the person who has just been baptized. That he calls them by name and says, in the name of Jesus Christ and by the authority of the Melchizedek priesthood, which I hold, I confirm you a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and say unto you, receive the Holy Ghost. So because baptism is required for the remission of sins and children are not to be baptized until they reach the age of accountability in Mormonism, or in other words, the age of eight, it was long the custom in Mormonism to not count children as members of the church until they had been baptized because it was at that point that they became 
members of the church. However, if you look at the website to which I referred you earlier, fullerconsideration.com backslash membership.php, you will see that sometime, apparently around 1989, a change was made in the way the church counts children as members of the church. Up to that point, it appears that the church had waited until children were baptized at the age of eight before they began counting them as members of the church, which makes sense given the doctrines of the church. However, it appears that in 1989, the church changed its policy regarding counting children as members of the church. What it looks like is that up to that point, they waited until children were baptized at the age of eight to count them as members of the church, and that in 1989, or close thereto, the church began counting children as members of the church as soon as they were born and or perhaps blessed. And this resulted in a massive spike in membership. And it has to be noted that because the LDS Church has such an extreme doctrine on the issue of infant baptism, and because the LDS Church has the doctrine in place that baptism is the means whereby a person becomes a member of the church, this change in policy by the LDS Church comes perilously close not only to cheating with the numbers, but also perilously close to denying its own doctrine that baptizing somebody before they're eight effectively denies the atonement of Jesus Christ. I am sure that there was a great deal of debate surrounding the change in this policy, but as I say, it appears to have changed sometime around 1989. Something else that happened in 1989 and 1990, which bears on this issue, is that there also appears to have been a massive spike in resignation numbers. Let me repeat that. Up to the point of 1989, there are very few statistical data points released by the church, whereby we can gauge how many people are resigning from the church. But for some reason or other, and we don't necessarily know the reason, Although it is speculated by some that the church had accumulated a vast number of resignation requests and not acted upon them. And then, suddenly, in 1989, for some reason or other, decided to process the entire batch at once. Now, it may be that this is simply coincidence, that at the same time as the church processed a massive number of resignations from the church, the church also decided at that point to start counting blessed children as members of the church, instead of waiting for them to reach the age of eight to be baptized as members of the church. So that one spike in church growth for the children would make up or cover up or cancel out, in some sense, the massive spike in church resignations. As I say, that may be a coincidence, but I tend to think that it probably is not a coincidence that both of those spikes, both positive and negative on church numbers, occurred at the same time. Now, it is a very difficult thing in the LDS church to get a fix on the actual activity rate of members of the church. We know that the LDS Church trots out numbers. They are now around 16 million of the total number of members of the church. But we also know that the vast majority, or at least the majority of those people that are being counted in the 16 million, are not active in the LDS Church, which means they do not attend church meetings and they are not observant Latter-day Saints. As I mentioned in a prior podcast, Sociologists and others are left to estimate that the number of active members of this 16 million is really closer to 5 million. But here I want to bring up the point that we should not have to guess at this number because Salt Lake City knows what the actual number is of active members of the church. They know this because every month or every three months in every ward, the ward membership clerk walks up and down the aisles during sacrament meeting, counting the number of members in attendance. This happens in every ward and branch throughout the church, and these ward membership clerks are taking those numbers and funneling them up to Salt Lake City. The reasoning behind this bean counting that I have heard expressed is because it is so that Salt Lake City will have an idea as to what the activity rate is in every ward so that they can apportion out tithing funds to wards commensurate with their activity rate. But what this also means is that Salt Lake City knows good and well exactly what the activity rate is among its members. But this is a number that Salt Lake City keeps close to its vest. It does not reveal this number. And so in spite of Elder Ballard saying just last November that the church is as transparent as they know how to be, it appears that transparency does not extend to the number of active members of the LDS Church. 
But because the church keeps this number secret, we can only surmise that it is a number that would not be beneficial or consonant to the church's claim that the church is growing. I can only assume that if there were a large number of active members of the church, the church would be touting this every six months and in every other Enzyme magazine. The fact that this number is kept secret is suggestive that the activity rate of Latter-day Saints is so low that the church does not want the members to know about it. Another thing the LDS Church did in order to beef up its membership numbers has to do with the inactive members of the church who have not taken the step of resigning their membership in the church. Now, that means people who are not active in the church, that's around 5 million out of the 16 million who are active in the church, and people who have not taken the effort and the step to resign from the church. So what we're talking about is inactives in the church, which is going to be the majority of members of the LDS church. These are people who just lose interest in the LDS church or become disillusioned with the LDS church for one reason or another and simply stop going to church. What does the LDS church do with those members who have not resigned but are not coming out to church? Well, the first thing we need to know is that they're definitely still counted as members of the church. They are on the church rolls. That much will be no surprise to you. What is somewhat of a surprise is that the LDS church at some point prior to 2005 decided that they would continue to count inactive members of the church as members of the church until such time as those inactive members reached the age of 100 and 10 years old. Now, if you have an active member of the church, you know when that church member dies, and they are presumably no longer counted as members of the church after they die. With people who resign from the church, there is a definite point in time at which they are no longer members, which is when their resignation is processed. So the church then is left with the question, well, what do we do with these people who are inactive? We don't know exactly when they're going to die because they're not coming out to church. They haven't resigned. What the church decided to do was we're going to count them as members of the church until they're 110 years old. And we know this from a Salt Lake Tribune article in 2005. Merrill Bateman, an LDS general authority, was being interviewed. And he confirmed that, barring known deaths, so in other words, if they don't know about the death of a member, an inactive member, the names of these inactive members are not removed from church records until they attain the age of 110. Here is the article. As I say, it's from the Salt Lake Tribune. It's from October 17, 2005. It is titled, Church Won't Give Up on Lost Members. Now, I'm quoting from the article. In an interview with the Salt Lake Tribune, LDS Church General Authority Merrill Bateman provided unprecedented detail about the LDS Church's address unknown file and the desire to locate the people he refers to as in-transit Mormons. Here's what Elder Bateman says in the article. We really don't give up on people, said Bateman, a member of the Quorum of the Seventy, one of the LDS Church's governing bodies. Continuing with Elder Bateman's quote, as long as they have not asked to have their names taken off the rolls of the church, we have a responsibility toward them and believe in them. We will be an influence to help them find their way back. The article in the Salt Lake Tribune goes on to note that life expectancy in the United States is about 78 years old. So having inactive members on the records of the church until they are 110 extends the life expectancy 32 years beyond 78. Now, Elder Bateman says that they do this in order to make sure that inactive members of the church do not die before the church gives up on trying to contact them. This is framed as a positive thing that the church is doing, that it will continue to try and get inactive members back into the church until they are dead and apparently long after that as well. We could just file this story under the heading of members can leave the LDS church, but the LDS church will not leave them alone. However, we also have to note for purposes of this podcast that what this decision to count inactive members of the church as members until they reach the hypothetical age of 110 has the practical effect of doing is bolstering the membership numbers of the church far above and beyond what they actually are. So if a person who is inactive 
dies at the regular life expectancy rate of 78, the LDS Church will continue to count that person as a member of the church for an additional 32 years until that person would have reached the age of 110. You can readily see how this policy has the effect of increasing the membership of the church above and beyond what it actually is. Now, some inactive members of the church will live until they're 78. Some will die earlier than that. Some will die when they are 60 years old. If a person who is an inactive member of the church dies when they're 60, they're going to be counted for an additional 50 years as members of the church, even though they are long since in the grave. Now I want to leave statistics for basically the rest of this podcast. Many of you will be breathing a sigh of relief over that, but I want to talk about different ways in which the church has decided to spin the massive defection of membership of the church as if it were actually church growth. Now you say, how can they do that? If people are leaving the church in record numbers, how can the church say that that actually represents church growth? Well, let me show you. And I'm going to reference an Enzyme magazine article from August of 2002, where it's talking about the history of the church in Chile, South America. Now back in the 70s and the 80s, Church growth in South America was booming. It was the largest growing location for church growth in the world. I was going on my mission. I was being called on a mission. Everybody who was being called on a mission kind of wanted to go to South America so they could go to the place where they could baptize hundreds of people on their mission. Instead, I got called to Japan. But nevertheless, the reports were constant from South America that the growth rate there was staggering. And frequently, that was linked to the idea that the members of those nations had Lamanite blood, believing blood. They were being called upon by that blood and the Holy Ghost in order to hear the missionary message and get baptized into the church. We found out in retrospect that what was going on there was actually less faith-promoting. What we found out in retrospect is that many of those baptisms were simply young men being baptized by missionaries without having been taught the gospel, without having been taught the missionary discussions, without having even gone to church once. Instead, many times those were done as part of an initiation process to get on a baseball team. Those are sometimes called baseball baptisms. They're sometimes called kiddie baptisms. I believe that John DeLynn mentioned that when he went on his mission in South America, that that was going on at that time, and it caused him a great deal of spiritual turmoil as to whether that was really what missionaries should be doing, which is baptizing people just to get the numbers cranked up on the membership instead of actually teaching people about the gospel and letting them make a reasoned and informed decision as to whether they wanted to join the church. But nevertheless, pressure was put on the mission presidents to produce baptisms. The mission presidents in turn put the pressure on the missionaries, and the missionaries were up to the task. But in order to get the numbers that were wanted by the mission presidents, they had to engage in these kinds of subterfuges. So what this meant was an alarming retention problem for the LDS church because they're baptizing all these people. The vast majority of this phenomenal rate of baptisms that was going on are people who had never been to church, who didn't know anything about the church, who in many instances didn't know they were getting baptized into the church, and of course never went to church afterward. So the number of baptisms was not being reflected in the number of active members. Now before I read you this article from the Enzyme about the church history in Chile, I want to talk to you about the Wikipedia article, which covers the same kind of subject. Now, here's what the Wikipedia article says in brief. The period of rapid expansion in membership, the one I was just talking to you about, was followed by a sharp contraction. The church is now retrenching after its period of high growth and hundreds of units, those are the words and branches, hundreds of units have been decommissioned since 1998. So here's what happened. The church finally woke up, smelled the coffee as to what was going on with the missionaries in South America and realized that they had a huge problem. They needed to go down there. They needed to take care of business. They needed to start consolidating wards and consolidating stakes, which means decommissioning wards and stakes. Because their problem is that they've got wards where they've got 200 people on the rolls, but maybe 10 people at most are coming out and similar problems in different wards and throughout the stakes due to this missionary activity. The problem was so bad that in 2002, the church actually sent one of its apostles down to Chile to be there for a year to oversee this decommissioning of units and the consolidation of the active members and the restructuring of the leadership of the church. And that apostle was Elder Jeffrey 
Holland. Here's what the Wikipedia article says. In 2002, the church sent Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, to remain in Chile for a year to train leadership and minister to the church, a role typically held by members of the Quorums of the Seventy. Due to high levels of member inactivity, 37% of the stakes created in Chile have since been discontinued. So that means that over a third of the stakes that were created during this illusory, booming missionary period, over a third of the stakes had to be decommissioned. Now, much of what I have just reviewed there will not be any surprise to my listeners, but here's why I went through the facts of what happened down there in Chile so that you could then compare it with what the Enzyme magazine article published by the LDS Church says about the same period of time in the same location. This is from the 2004 October issue of the Enzyme. Here's how the church spins this story. In August 2002, the first presidency assigned two members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles to preside over two church areas. So you see, the problem wasn't just in Chile. Elder Dallin H. Oaks was assigned to the Philippines and Elder Jeffrey R. Holland to Chile. The Ensign article goes on. Elder Holland's ministry and influence while in Chile is immeasurable and its impact will remain for generations. Now listen to this next paragraph closely and see how the church makes it sound like this debacle in Chile was actually the church growing beyond all bounds. Elder Holland's primary emphasis, this is the article, Elder Holland's primary emphasis was to provide an example of leading in the Lord's way. He helped train new leaders and oversaw the reorganization, discontinuation, and merging of hundreds of wards and dozens of stakes. So here they approach the truth, but it goes on. This reorganization and training were needed because of the rapid growth of the church in the country. Let me repeat that because you may have thought I read that wrong. I did not. Here it is again. The Enzyme article says that Elder Holland had to go down for a year to Chile and reorganize and train members there because, quote, this reorganization and training were needed because of the rapid growth of the church in the country. It concludes the paragraph by saying his leadership helped to strengthen the units and prepare the church in Chile for the future. Now that one line sure sounds to me like the LDS Church in the Enzyme magazine is trying to say that Elder Holland had to spend a year in Chile because the growth in Chile was so phenomenal. Now, if called upon to justify this statement, I imagine the author of the Enzyme article would say, well, yes, the justification would apparently be that it was the rapid growth of the church in the country followed by a massive lack of retention of the members being baptized that caused Elder Holland to go down to that country. But the massive failure to retain members and the kiddie baptisms and the baseball baptisms and all these other missionary shenanigans do not figure into the Enzyme article. Instead, this one sentence slices the truth so fine that you could read a newspaper through it. And as the church itself teaches in its Gospel Principles Manual, if you are saying something that may hyper-technically be true, but you're trying to say it in order to give a false impression, that qualifies as lying. Let me read this one sentence to you again, and you can judge for yourself whether this qualifies as lying. Quote, This reorganization and training were needed because of the rapid growth of the church in the country. End quote. Now, this is the type of thing that the church is doing and continues to do in order to cover up the fact that it is having massive problems keeping members and also massive problems attracting members. It will try and give the impression that members are continuing to join the church, that the church indeed is growing when that is not the case, at least certainly not to the degree that official church sources and publications and announcements are trying to get the members of the church to believe. At some point, it becomes analogous to the Germans in 1945 broadcasting that they are winning the war when the Allies are on the outskirts of Berlin. Another example of this comes, interestingly enough, from General Conference. This is another apostle of the church, Elder Quentin Cook. The Saturday afternoon session of April 2015 General Conference in his talk titled, The Lord is My Light. Now, that's an interesting title for a talk in which he is going to lie through his teeth to the membership of the church 
about how many members are leaving the church. Let me give you a little background for this quote. I covered it in the last episode, so I'll just briefly review it here. In 2011, in November of 2011, Marlon Jensen, the church historian at the time, said publicly that the church has never experienced a period of apostasy as it is currently experiencing since the days of Kirtland. And he also said that this is not something that is a secret, that the top 15 men in the church, i.e. the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, not only know about this fact, but that they are concerned about this fact. In the next several months, news of this pronouncement by Elder Jensen hit the fan. It was published in a number of media outlets, and other LDS heavyweights such as Richard Bushman and Terrell Givens weighed in on the fact, agreeing with him, that members were leaving the church in record-breaking numbers because of difficulties they were encountering with church history, information that had been long kept suppressed by the LDS church from its members, but which was becoming increasingly available to the members of the church by means of the internet. So this is April of 2015, which is just approximately three years after the media blitz on this issue was hitting the fan. That was in January and February of 2012. This is now April of 2015, three years later. And it is clear that Elder Cook knows that some people are saying that more members are leaving the church today and that there is more doubt and unbelief than in the past. It's clear that he knows this because that's what he says. Play the tape. Some have asserted that more members are leaving the church today and that there is more doubt and unbelief than in the past. Stop the tape. Who is Elder Cook talking about? Well, obviously he's talking about Elder Marlon Jensen, who was not only the church historian, he was also a general authority, who said that more members are leaving the church today and that there is more doubt and unbelief than in the past. He's also talking about Richard Bushman. He's also talking about Terrell Givens. So when Elder Cook says, some have asserted that more members are leaving the church today and that there is more doubt and unbelief than in the past, we know who he's talking about. But what does he say about people who have made this claim? Play the tape. Some have asserted that more members are leaving the church today and that there is more doubt and unbelief than in the past. This is simply not true. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has never been stronger. Stop the tape. Wait a second. How can Elder Cook say this? We know because we examined the record in the last episode that not only does the church historian say this, but other church historians and scholars say exactly the same thing. And not only did Marlon Jensen say it in 2011, he said that Elder Cook himself knew about this fact and that Elder Cook was concerned about this fact. Remember Elder Marlon Jensen said that the top 15 men in the church know and are concerned about the mass exodus of members from the church? Well, Elder Cook is among that number of top 15 men in the church. And yet here we have Elder Cook in general conference publicly announcing that this is simply not true. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has never been stronger. Well, I'm not sure what to make of this, but it's obvious that somebody is lying. Either Marlon Jensen was lying in November of 2011, and Terrell Givens was lying, and Richard Bushman was lying, or Elder Cook is lying in general conference, April 2015, to the entire membership of the church. And based on the statistics I have seen and the research I have done and the quotes that I have read, it appears that it is Elder Cook, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, who has decided that this is a time to begin lying. And unfortunately, he has decided to lie not only to the members of the church, not only as an apostle of the Lord, but also in a talk that was ironically titled, The Lord is My Light. But Elder Cook is not the only apostle who has decided it was appropriate to prevaricate on this issue. Elder Jeffrey Holland also got on board this bus. He did not do it in general conference, however. He did it at a young single adult meeting in Dallas, Texas, April 24, 2016. Now, this is one of those meetings that members of the church are not supposed to record because sometimes... Church leaders and apostles may say things that they don't want to be held accountable for later. It is possible this is one of those statements, and yet we do have it recorded, and this is Elder Holland talking about church growth. And in spite of the fact that Elder Holland is one of the top 15 leaders of the church, about whom Elder Jensen said, is aware of the mass disaffection problem in the LDS church and is concerned about it, Elder Holland says in April of 2016 that the church growth rate is greater than it has ever been 
in the history of the church and that it is greater than it has ever been in the history of the world. Since Adam and Eve walked out of the Garden of Eden, yes, according to Elder Holland, in 2016, church growth is greater than it has ever been. Play the tape. We're in the midst of, of incredible growth, staggering growth in the church. It's the single biggest problem we have. It's the best problem we could have, but it's the biggest. Uh, we, we are reeling under the implications of the growth that we have in this church. So you can see that Elder Holland is very clear about this. The growth in the church is staggering, and it is the single biggest problem that the church has, that the church is reeling under the implications of the growth we are experiencing in the church. And now Elder Holland is going to give us some statistics about stake growth that support this claim he is making about overall church growth. Play the tape. Last Thursday, I've been out here this Thursday, I've been with Elder and Sister Holland and been with Elder and Sister Robbins this this week. So we I missed the temple meeting this Thursday. But a week ago Thursday, we created 15 stakes. Um, and we're doing that masamenos every every week, more, more or less. Uh, it might not be 15, but it's uh, the week before it was 12. Uh, sometimes it's eight or whatever, and it'll be a little uneven. But 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 the point is, I mean, we're we're talking double-digit stakes every week, every week of our lives. Okay, now this is a remarkable claim that they are creating 15 stakes on one particular week, and that they are creating double-digit stakes every week. Every week of every year, every week of our lives, as he puts it. We're going to go on and examine that claim a little bit more thoroughly. But first, I want to play this last part of his quote in which he does say that this growth in the church in 2016, i.e. today, is greater than it has ever been in the history of the world. Play the tape. Missionaries, temples, everything, everything we're doing is bigger than it's ever been done in the history of the world. I'm not just talking about since October. I'm not just talking about since 1940, since Adam and Eve walked out of the garden. Stop the tape. So you can see that Elder Holland is making it very clear. This growth that he's claiming the church is experiencing is greater than anything that's ever happened in the history of the world since Adam and Eve walked out of the garden. Now, I think you will agree with me that considering the fact that church growth is flatlining during this period and that Elder Holland no doubt knows that the church growth is flatlining, and Elder Holland also knows, no doubt, that people are leaving the church in record numbers for him to go in front of an audience and claim that the church is growing in 2016 greater than it has ever grown in the history of the church, greater than it has ever grown in the history of the world, is something that does not even remotely resemble the truth. In fact, it is a claim that is made in direct contradiction to the truth. And yet here we have Elder Holland on tape saying exactly this. Now, let's get back to that claim he made about double-digit growth of stakes. Because I started wondering, is there some place on the church website where it announces the creation of new stakes? And I did a little research, and lo and behold, yes, there is a page on the church website that does, on a monthly basis, announce the creation of new stakes. And I wondered, does this correspond to what Elder Holland said, that the creation of new stakes is in the double digits every week, every week of our lives? Now, Elder Holland gave this talk on April 24, 2016. That was a Sunday. So when he says, on that day, a week ago Thursday, we created 15 stakes, well, a week ago Thursday from Sunday, April 24th, would have been Thursday, April 14th. That would have been a week ago Thursday from the date he gave that address. So let's see what was going on with state creation by looking at the official church news outlet on the church website. Unfortunately, those statistics on the church website itself do not corroborate what Elder Holland is saying. And you can look this up for yourself on the church website. In April 2016, the very month that Elder Holland is saying that a week ago Thursday, 15 new stakes were created, the official church website says, no, 15 new stakes were not created. In fact, it wasn't 14 or 13 or 12. Instead, in April of 2016, Zero new stakes were created. This made me wonder what other months might say. So I did a little additional research, and here is what I found. 
In March of 2016, the month before Elder Holland gives this address, the church website claims that seven new stakes were created. In April of 2016, as I said, zero new stakes were created. In May of 2016, six new stakes were created. In June of 2016, three new stakes are created. Now, wait a second. Let me just stop here, okay? In June, that's the month of June, three new stakes are created. In May, the previous month, six new stakes are created. Remember that Elder Holland is claiming that not every month double-digit stakes are being created. And even if he were claiming that, the church website shows this to be false. Elder Holland is claiming that double-digit stakes are being created every week, every week of our lives. And what the church website is showing, that that statement is so far removed from the truth as to be almost unrecognizable. In May of 2016, six new stakes were created. Now, if Elder Holland were telling the truth that double-digit stakes are being created every week, then that would be a minimum of 40 stakes being created every month. But instead, in April 2016, we have zero. In May, six. In June, three new stakes. In July, six more new stakes. I've covered a five-month period there, March through July. That was the extent of my research. During this five-month period, which is right at the time when Elder Holland is reporting from the battlefield that they are doing double-digit stake growth every week, over five months, that should be around 200 stakes, which would be five months times four weeks times 10 stakes. But the reality, at least as reported by the church news on the church's own website, is less dramatic. Seven stakes in March plus zero plus six plus three plus six equals how many new stakes over this five-month period? 22. Only 22. Not 200. Elder Holland has inflated the number of stakes actually being created by a factor of 10. Or in other words, the reality is one-tenth of what Elder Holland is claiming. And even this anemic growth may be inflated by another tactic the church seems to have been taking in recent years, which is reorganizing stakes in such a way that fewer wards are needed to create a stake now than they have been in the past. Let me put that another way. What seems to be happening in the church, both from statistics as well as from anecdotes, is that the church has gone through a rather large process of reorganizing stakes. For purposes of illustration, let's say that there had to be 10 wards, and that's not necessarily that far off, but 10 wards to create a stake. So if we're dealing with 100 wards, you can create 10 stakes out of that with 10 wards per stake. But if you change that from 10 wards per stake to 9 wards per stake and cut back the number of wards that are required to create a stake, then with 100, all of a sudden, instead of having 10 stakes, you will have 11 stakes with one ward left over. In other words, if you have 10 wards per stake, then 100 wards will give you 10 stakes. But if you reduce the number of wards necessary to create a stake to 9, now all of a sudden you've got 99 wards, which will create 11 stakes plus an additional ward left over. So with the same membership numbers and the same ward numbers, it appears the church may have been gaming the system to make it look like the church is growing because it's growing in the number of stakes, but the number of stakes are growing faster than the number of wards. This is the statistic that has come to my attention, that in 2016, the growth rate of stakes was 2.9%, but the growth rate in wards and branches was 0.96%. Put another way, the growth rate of stakes in 2016 was three times as fast as the growth rate of the wards. Now, how could that possibly be? Well, the answer is it could not be if the same number of members were required to be in each ward and the same number of wards were required to be in each stake. If that were a constant, then the growth rate of the stakes would be reflected at the same rate as the growth rate of the wards. But the fact that stakes are growing at a rate three times faster than the growth rate of the wards does suggest that the number of wards required to create a stake have been reduced from what they were before 2016. And as I say, once again, I have reports coming in anecdotally from other members of the church throughout the United States that yes, indeed, this is what they are seeing on the ground in their own stakes, recreation of stakes to be recreated with fewer wards. 
So, in summary, Elder Holland in 2016, in April, publicly proclaims to the young adults that the church is growing faster now than it has ever in the history of the church when that is in fact not the case. It is in fact, unfortunately, a lie. Or perhaps to put it more charitably, Elder Holland seems to have been quite full of the Blarney when he said this. And not only is he inflating the church-reported growth of stakes by a factor of 10, claiming that they would be at least 200 when in fact they are 22. Over the span of five months, even those 22 new stakes reported by the church's own website may itself be an inflation caused by reducing the number of wards necessary to create a new stake. But still, the single most flabbergasting thing to me is that in the month of April 2016, when Elder Holland claims that on one Thursday, 15 stakes were created, the official church website says, no, there were zero stakes created in the entire month. Circles within circles, deceptions within deceptions. That recording of Elder Holland was from Dallas, Texas on April 24th of 2016. Just two days later, Elder Holland was in Tempe, Arizona, where he gave another public discourse. Once again, this discourse was not supposed to be recorded, and yet it was. In his speech in Tempe, Arizona, Elder Holland presents very differently than he did two days earlier in Dallas, Texas. In fact, he is quite impassioned about the idea of people leaving the church. I'm going to play a segment of this speech. And what I want you to do is to think about this. In Dallas, Texas, Elder Holland is a man who is full of optimism because the church is growing faster than it has ever grown. Compare this with what he says two days later and see if what he says two days later in Tempe, Arizona, sound like the words of a man who is still thrilled that the church is growing as fast as it is, or whether it sounds more like the words of a man who is extremely concerned about members leaving the church. This is about a three-minute segment, but believe me, it is worth the listen. Elder Holland is in top form in Tempe, Arizona. Play the tape. Most of us do not want to pay that price. Now, thank heavens we did survive that one-third, two-third cut in the pre-existence. But I think there's some days here where we get a little weak need, We get a little willy-nilly and say, uh, you know, I'm going to pay all this. Don't you dare bail. I am so furious with people who leave this church. I don't know whether furious is a good apostolic word. <laughs> but I am. And I say, what on earth kind of conviction is that? What kind of patty cake, taffy pull experience is that? <laughs> As if, as if none of this ever mattered, as if nothing in our contemporary life mattered, as if this is all just supposed to be just exactly the way I want it, and answer every one of my questions, and pursue this, and occupy that, and defy this, and then maybe I'll be a Latter-day Saint. Well, there's too much Irish in me for that. <laughs> this church means everything to me. Everything. I don't care what happens. I don't care what price is to be paid. As painful as that can be, and as much as I don't want to invite the test, as much as I don't want to sound arrogant or self-confident or filled with any kind of pride other than in love of the Lord, this church means everything to me. And I'm not going to leave it, and I'm not going to let you leave it. And if there's anybody in this room who's investigating, I want to talk to you tonight before the clock strikes 12 for you to get in it. <laughs> because everything that I've said tonight is true about the destiny of the human soul. A plan ordained for us to be like God and with God and resurrected and whole and perfect and happy. And it is in the gospel of Jesus Christ that that happens. The great initial first principle of life on the high seas. When life gets tough and the church is complex and the world is crumbling, the first great rule of a storm at sea is stay in the boat. <laughs> this is no time for you to say, oh, well, now it looks like, I don't know, nobody cares. 
I'll get up here, I'll get up here on the edge and do a little half gainer over the side. <laughs> Boy, that's a terrific performance. I can tell you, you're in for a good experience. That's the dumbest thing you can do. And, and the only thing dumber would be for somebody else to follow you. You stay in the boat and pull the life jacket down on you and grab an oar and just hang on and it's going to get calm. The storm's going to pass. We're going to come into port. The sun is going to shine. Once again, do these words sound like the words of a man who is happy that church growth is the biggest problem the church has. And on another note, as I listened to this more closely, I started to think that perhaps Elder Holland is not just talking about things in general, but maybe focusing his words on a certain person in particular. And the clue to that comes in the first part of the recording I played, where he says, everything is supposed to be just exactly the way I want it and answer every one of my questions. The one person in contemporary Mormonism who is famous for asking that his questions be answered and ultimately leaving the church because his questions would not be answered is Jeremy Reynolds. I went back and I did a little bit of investigation on Jeremy Reynolds and specifically when it was that he was excommunicated from the church. As you will recall, he went to his excommunication proceedings still wanting his questions to be answered. He videotaped the excommunication proceedings. He asked for his questions to be answered. They still were not answered. He ends up walking out of the disciplinary council and he is excommunicated. Now, remembering that these comments were made by Elder Holland on April 26, 2016, I wondered when it was that Jeremy Reynolds was excommunicated because you will remember that shortly after he was excommunicated, he posted the videotape to the internet. And I found out that Jeremy Reynolds was excommunicated only a few days before Elder Holland gave the address in Tempe, Arizona. It was on April 17, 2016, that Jeremy Reynolds was excommunicated. And Elder Holland, apparently, prior to April 26th of 2016 and his address in Tempe, Arizona, got word of the fact that this had happened and that Jeremy Reynolds had posted it to the Internet. Once again, listen to this phrase from Elder Holland's speech. Play the tape. I am so furious with people who leave this church. I don't know whether furious is a good apostolic word. <laughs> but I am. What on earth kind of conviction is that? What kind of patty cake, taffy pole experience is that? <laughs> As if, as if none of this ever mattered, as if nothing in our contemporary life mattered, as if this is all just supposed to be just exactly the way I want it, and answer every one of my questions. And Did you hear that? And answer every one of my questions? That's the telltale sign he's talking about Jeremy Reynolds. But Elder Holland isn't through excoriating Jeremy Reynolds. He goes on. And answer every one of my questions, and pursue this, and occupy that, and defy this, and then maybe I'll be a Latter-day Saint. Well, there's too much Irish in me for that. <laughs> but Elder Holland isn't done yet in apparently commenting on Jeremy Reynolds' disciplinary council. The great initial first principle of life on the high seas. When life gets tough, and the church is complex, and the world is crumbling, the first great rule of a storm at sea is stay in the boat. This is no time for you to say, oh, well, now it looks like, I don't know, nobody cares. I'll get up here, I'll get up here on the edge and do a little half gainer over the side. <laughs> Boy, that's a terrific performance. I can tell you, you're in for a good experience. That's the dumbest thing you can do. And, and the only thing dumber would be for somebody else to follow you. So this is a recording of Elder Holland apparently mocking Jeremy Reynolds, somebody who just wants his questions to be answered. Well, I suppose it's easier for Elder Holland to mock Jeremy Reynolds than just to answer his questions. Now I'm turning to a newspaper account 
From Fox 13 News, Dateline, American Fork, Utah, where Jeremy Reynolds was excommunicated on April 17th. It refers to Jeremy Reynolds' now famous letter to a CES director. In his letter, the article says, Reynolds raises a number of doubts and questions about the Mormon religion and its history. Some of the topics include Joseph Smith's polygamous practices and the writings in the Book of Mormon. Reynolds said he was promised a response by the CES director, but he said that never came. He said he was then approached by a stake president, who he said also promised answers. Then it goes on to quote Jeremy Reynolds himself. Three years and no answers from the CES director, and a year and a half of no answers from my stake president. It became very obvious that the church does not have the answers. So you can see that this excommunication of Jeremy Reynolds, April 17, 2016, was likely the spark that lit the very short fuse of Elder Holland, who went off on April 26, 2016, in Tempe, Arizona. Once again, going back to this article, officials with the LDS Church declined to comment on the disciplinary council, saying they are private matters. Well, that's the typical response we get from the church. But interestingly enough, if we listen to Elder Holland in Tempe, Arizona, this may indeed be the closest I have ever heard a church leader come to violating that policy and commenting publicly on Jeremy Reynolds and his disciplinary counsel, even though it is a private matter, and even though Elder Holland does not mention Jeremy Reynolds by name, it is clear from what he says that this is what he is commenting on. So having said all that, the question is raised, is Elder Holland that mad just about Jeremy Reynolds leaving the church, or is he mad about the fact that Jeremy Reynolds is publicly exposing the fact that not only he, but many, many people like him are leaving the church over questions about church history? In other words, if Elder Holland really is saying the truth that the church is growing faster than it's ever grown in the history of the world, And if Elder Holland actually believes that the church is growing faster than it ever has in the history of the world, why would it bother him so much if one person in the midst of this phenomenal and unprecedented church growth leaves the church? Who would care? The caravan moves on. And yet, he seems extremely upset in Tempe, Arizona on April 26, 2016. It sounds to me like he is upset about more than just one person leaving the church. It sounds to me like he is upset about the fact that people are leaving the church in droves. It sounds to me like he is corroborating what Elder Marlon Jensen said in 2011, that the top 15 men, that includes Elder Holland, are aware that people are leaving the church in unprecedented numbers and they are concerned about it. And on April 24th, 2016 in Dallas, Elder Holland is talking about how the church is growing faster than it has ever grown, which appears to be a case of lying his Irish ass off. And two days later, he is furious about people leaving the church. I'll let you do the math on that. Finally, we come to the most recent apostolic statement relating to growth in the LDS church. This is President Iring, January 16th, 2018 at the public announcement of Russell M. Nelson being chosen as the new president of the LDS Church. This isn't the press conference that came later. This is the shorter conference that came before that, which was to members of the church, at which the three new members of the first presidency spoke. It was a short meeting. Henry Eyring spoke as the new second counselor in the first presidency. And what he said was fascinating to me because what he does here is he changes the definition of the word growth as it relates to the growth of the church. What he does is he briefly recaps the phenomenal growth of the church since Joseph Smith, but then he says that the growth that is the most important growth and the growth that will accelerate from this time forth is not the growth in membership, it's the growth in faith in the members hearts. Here's where he shifts the definition midway through a sentence. I'm going to play this audio tape for you. Listen carefully to what President Eyring says. Play the tape. Joseph Smith was the first prophet of this dispensation. At the start, he could speak to all the members of the church in one building in one place. In just a few years, there were faithful members in nations across the world. 
Today, President Nelson addresses vast numbers of members who worship in thousands of buildings. The growth in the number of members and their spread across nations, kindreds, tongues and peoples are visible miracles. But the greater miracle, and the one which will accelerate, is the growth in faith in Jesus Christ. The Lord has prepared and chosen President Nelson to lead in that growth. The growth will come as we each pray, work, and live to have the Holy Ghost as our companion in our lives. Did you hear what President Eyring did there? He changed the definition of growth from numbers of members, which can be calculated, measured, objectively observed, and tabulated, and now is changing it to something that is subjective that cannot be observed or measured, i.e. the growth in faith in the individual members. It's very interesting to me that Elder Eyring did this on January 16th of 2018. This appears to be a trial balloon and a surreptitious segue to change the definition of growth, which the church has always said is a sign of the true church, but now we're going to say that the growth that is a sign of the true church is no longer in the membership because the membership growth is dying off. Instead, we're going to shift it over to something called faith in the members' hearts, and that's what's going to continue to grow, and that's what will continue to be the sign of the true church. It's just awfully hard to measure those numbers. It's interesting to me that he said this on January 16th, 2018, because on January 12th, 2018, Eric Armstrong raised this very issue in an article titled Mormonism's Crisis of Faith. This was written for the New Republic, and the reason it was written has to do with the subtitle, which was involving the backlash against an obituary of the late Prophet Thomas S. Monson, and how Eric Armstrong believes that reveals the existential doubts gnawing at the modern church. Eric Armstrong is a former member of the church, and his opening paragraph to this article sets forth the vision of Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel interprets in Daniel chapter 2, where we started this podcast in episode 1. He goes on to say, But Mormons have taken the kingdom of God in this context to mean the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon church itself, in Mormon circles, in fact, stone cut without hands has become shorthand for the church and the gospel it preaches. In the next paragraph, the article says, To Mormons, the breakneck speed with which the church has grown from just six members at its founding in 1830 to more than 15 million in 2017 represents Daniel's prophecy fulfilled. Once again, saying the same thing, that we covered in episode one. Later on in the article, it states, Though I am no longer a practicing member, that's how I felt growing up in the church. In Sunday school once, an elder stood up in the middle of class, brandishing a magazine rolled up like a stick. He explained, gesturing to the curled pages in his hand, that an article had just been published declaring Mormonism to be the fastest growing religious sect in American history. And if current growth trends continued, he said, there could be 265 million members of the church worldwide by 2080. That's 2080. At the time, the Mormon church was on pace to become the first new major world religion of the 21st century. Later on in the article, it states, In fact, church growth has cooled to its slowest pace since 1937. Mormon supremacy is no longer the foregone conclusion that it was when I was a young believer. And finally, in the concluding paragraph of this article for the New Republic, this is what Eric Armstrong says, and this is why it's so interesting to me that this was published four days before President Eyring gave his new definition of growth on January 16th of 2018. This is the final paragraph from the New Republic article. So now church leaders must constantly contend with the words of previous prophets or risk throwing the entire enterprise into question. And to complicate things even more, the church's membership has been conditioned to defend a crystallized dogma at all cost. If the church doesn't find some way to free itself from the burden of its own theology, it will be left behind. 
and the remaining stalwarts will be forever destined to complain about obituaries in the New York Times. And here is the final sentence from the article. If baptism rates continue to fall, it may want to start with a reinterpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Let me repeat that last sentence because this is exactly what President Eyring is going to do four days later. If baptism rates continue to fall, it, the LDS Church, may want to start with a reinterpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And I contend that this is exactly what President Eyring is doing four days later. Now, I'm not saying he came up with this idea and is doing it because he got the idea from Eric Armstrong and the New Republic article. What I'm saying is, is that this is a convergence of ideas at the same time. That the membership slacking, the membership growth declining, the number of members flooding out of the church are leading to the church to the point where it has to begin doing a reinterpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So the growth of the membership of the church is no longer the sign that proves the LDS Church a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 2 in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now according to President Eyring, it is the growth of faith in the members themselves. This is strikingly like the talk given by Elder Bednar in 2013, where he famously said that it actually requires greater faith to not be healed then it requires to be healed. There, Elder Bednar says that even though if you have faith to be healed, then we will have an observable, objectively verifiable healing that we can look at to show that the priesthood is working, that faith is working. But if a person dies after they receive a priesthood blessing, actually they have greater faith. They have faith not to be healed. Similarly, President Eyring is now saying that the growth of the church that proves it is true is not in the growth in membership which can be objectively verified and counted. Instead, he's going to shift it over into the spiritual realm of faith. And the growth of the church, which is the most important and which will continue to accelerate, is the growth in faith in the members' hearts. Well, unfortunately, if President Eyring is correct and we compare these two talks and cross-reference them, the time may come when the faith in the individual member's heart has grown so great that nobody will be healed, and there will not be one Mormon left standing. So in conclusion, in the 1970s and 80s and on into the 90s, the church publicly, prophetically, and repeatedly tied its truth claims to its growth in membership. In the last decade or two, the internet has made negative information about the church available to all, including the members of the church, from whom the church tried its best, and frankly is continuing to try its best, to shield from that information. As a result, mass disaffection has followed. Growth rates have plummeted. What do the leaders do? Well, they instituted wide-ranging programs to try to address the issue, and they have pleaded for members to come back to the fold. While at the same time, some apostles have denied that members are leaving the church in record numbers. That was Elder Cook from conference. And other apostles have said that the church is growing faster than it ever has in the history of the world. That would be Elder Holland from Dallas, Texas. Now, Elder Eyring is surreptitiously trying to change the definition of church growth from actual membership to growth in faith. And that, in short, is the answer to the question of what church leaders are doing now that church growth is slowing and members are leaving in unprecedented numbers, in spite of their protestations of transparency and being honest with its members, they are still not coming clean. They are dealing with this problem the way they deal with every problem, with lies, damn lies, and statistics. And until they come clean and are actually honest with the members about what is going on, the church is going to continue to lose members at an ever-increasing rate. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.